Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffer, New Hampshire. Our new series is focusing on the book of Titus. If you were building a church from square one, what would you make sure to include into the architectural schematics and blueprints? Titus aims to examine the framework and the core beliefs that make up a good church. Jesus has laid out instructions for us to follow, and according to Paul's letter to a young pastor, Titus, the Christian church should always include humble leadership, sound doctrine, godly living, all sourced from the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus. So join us as we dive into examining what makes up a Christ-centered church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Today, the message is going to be uh, kind of combining all of those together. As I want us to look a little bit at the blueprints for a church family. And uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to get into this message. This, this passage has been influential to me as I've been thinking about my ministry as a pastor, as an elder here, but also just generally as the trajectory of our church and how our church is structured. And so Josh had uh, the opportunity last Sunday uh, to do our series on Titus. And he be started our series off for us. I had the opportunity to preach at another church in Northfield, Massachusetts, a friend of mine's church. And so Josh filled the pulpit. And if you haven't heard his message that's online, go back. He did a fantastic job presenting to us Titus chapter 1. And he looked at the gospel and the structure of the church and how much the gospel is that central foundational element and this qualifications for elders and what leaders are to look like and how they're to operate within the church. And so Titus 1, he looked at last week. Today, uh, we're looking at Titus 2. I'm going to read here Titus 1 through 14, uh, but we're really focusing on the first 10 verses. We're looking at doing two messages in chapter 2. And so let's start reading here in Titus 2, 1, and then we'll kind of introduce the topic uh, alonghand for this idea here. Titus 2, 1. But as for you, speaking to Titus and, and the church at large, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And for Titus as a young man, Verse 7 applies to him and young men. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11 of Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us pray. Father, we look to you today. We ask for your wisdom upon these words that you would teach us with your truth. You would speak into the very core of our understanding, our very soul would gravitate toward these realities. God, that we would sense that you are alive within this place. You are alive within these people. Every single soul, every single person here, God, this is for them. God, speak through me. Allow me to speak what it is you would have me to say. Help me to encourage this congregation. Help me to challenge them with your word as you have done to me this week. 
And may you be glorified, as Kale and the team sang earlier, you are worthy of it all. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this series in Titus is, is, has this blueprint theme. In fact, you'll notice this is some of the uh, outline and some of the thoughts that we had a long time ago for the designs and things have changed over time of this church and things are changing now. What expansion and where and what to do. And yet I think it's so important in a very short book like Titus to be able to look at the real core foundational structure of a church, the very blueprints for organizing a church, and then who it is that actually fill that church up to be. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, right? You're very, very well familiar to this. Those who build it labor in vain. The Lord has given us this word on how a church should be built. Paul is speaking to Titus, a young pastor in the island of Crete. Crete was a pretty crazy place to live. In fact, chapter one, it says that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said of Cretans that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> That's the summary of the people of Crete. Probably not too far off the... Uh, off the, uh, of America these days, right? You know? But when, when, uh, when he, he's going there and he's starting this church in Crete, Paul's writing a letter to Titus as a young man, a young pastor, and telling him, hey, this is the blueprint of what a healthy church should look like. And so it does us well in the modern world today in 2023 to look at this little bit of a blueprint and see how is our church structured? How are we filling up this church? How are we building this house, right? And so with my extensive knowledge on building and construction, <laughs> I'm going to remind us on all the things that go into building a house, right? I, I uh, have built many houses in my day. Okay, no, I don't. So I, 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 some of you understand the jokes here, but um, y- y- many of you build and are in construction and are experts in that field, and uh, I am not. Uh, however, I have had the experience, a very small little bit, of going through the process of building and constructing. And, and I'm actually told they don't really use blueprints anymore, I guess. I don't know, CAD drawings and all these new things. In it, but it still looks cool, right? Uh, but the idea of building a house, there's so much goes into it. There's so much planning. There's so much strategy and thought. Uh, there's so many things that just have to start even before the house can be built. You have to clear the land. You have to level it out to get the right materials in. You have to come up with plans and permits if, and all of these things with the town. There's plans for a septic. There's plans for the floor plan, you know, the, where the house, where the rooms, where the bathrooms will be, how big the house will look, the kitchen design and the cabinets and the colors and the hand, all the decisions that need to be made. Some are fun and some can be very stressful, right? The interior design, what the feel of the interior of the house will be with the flow. Um, and then it comes down to sometimes just counting the cost. Can you actually afford to build this thing? Can you actually know what it's going to cost at the end? How much material will be needed for this and that? And then filling the house with things that actually need uh, appliances and furniture, what, what the whole layout will be and where everyone will stay and where everyone will live. And yet, if you're building a house for your family, if you're building a house for your family, the, the real reason you're building a house isn't just to build a house and to look at it, it's so that you can live in it. And I know this is a very obvious pastoral illustration. You're like, duh, right? It's okay. But it's simply thinking about these very basic ideas. You build the house, you construct the house so that your family can live in the house. You could think even your multi-generational family can live in that house. Maybe grandparents, as has been very common throughout history, is multiple family units living together under one roof. This house goes from a constructed building of foundational, you know, the concrete, we can't forget you guys, the concrete, and then the construction of the, the, the house frame and the roof and, and everything that goes in it so that one day that house isn't just a house, it becomes a home. And it becomes a home because you move in. When you live in that place, you move in that joyous day. I know we just got to help friends do that the other day, just on Friday, move into the house. 
get all their stuff and put it into the house and all the planning and preparation and hard work and blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that to finally move into this space. We're talking today about the church, the structure of it, some of these things that make it up and how is it framed and how is it organized. Chapter one spoke about the elders and the leaders and the authority and yet how that works and yet it doesn't end in chapter one for that house has to be filled with something and thank goodness it's filled with people like you. It's filled with the church. So today we're gonna be talking a lot about the church family, the family living in the house. There's a book I've read that talks a lot about the idea of church ministry and as a pastor elder relationship with the church, but this concept of a trellis and a vine. A trellis is something of a structure, maybe not beautiful in itself, the structure of a church or that trellis is not there for itself. It is there so that the vine can grow and thrive higher and bear fruit, right? So very much of what we have in the structure of a church isn't for structure's sake, It is so that the vine can grow. It is so the people can live in the house and thrive and live together and model outward what it is that this family is for and all about. And so the blueprints of a house are vital. Titus 2 really is kind of an inverted uh, idea for it. This message today, the ending of this message really, or the, core, the main central focus of this message is going to be very centered on the people of God and your lifestyle and your godly living. And yet, it's kind of inverted because at the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 14, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can look through that. Verses 11 through 14, what we read there at the end, is really the core central foundation of everything that goes on within the house. If you don't have verses 11 through 14, uh, this real gospel-centeredness, then the family gets all out of whack. The house doesn't really hold up. When the storms come, it falls over. It's built on sand, right? So verses 11 through 14, this is the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The gospel is here, saving folks, bringing them to the house, training you to renounce sin and ungodliness and and driving us to live towards a godly, self-controlled life. And it's all because Jesus, God our Savior, has appeared. He has come He has given himself to redeem us, to save us from sin, and now to purify us as a people, a new family of God, or as some would say, a a new society of God, a new nation. Lars just read it, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. Now, what are we to do? We are now to be a people who, as Titus says, zealous for good works. And not the other way around, that good works are what save us, but instead we are a people that are zealous for good works because what God has done for us, right? And so we are to teach sound doctrine and teach the truth, and yet we are also to adorn that doctrine with our good works by being zealous for the truth and what is good. You could explain it, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk, right? That's a very biblical statement, even though that's not in the Bible. But if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. I'm talking to myself too. Preacher, if you're going to get up here and preach these things, you better be living it out too, right? Talk, teach sound doctrine that accords with with, uh, the word of God. But walk in that sound doctrine as well by adorning it, beautifying the truth, with your lifestyle, with your actions, with your good works. So I gave you guys a little bit of a layout. Why don't we bring that up? It's a gospel-empowered blueprint for your life. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I understand this. Now, this is great. So this is a a layout for the church that I made up in my office and then Hannah put into a nice screen. This is how my brain works sometimes, all right? So it's a scary place sometimes. But hopefully this is helpful. Essentially, in my head, this passage and really all of Titus works like this. Essentially, on that top of the floor plan, you have rooms for faith, belief, and doctrine. Some of you resonate with those words. Some doctrine, you're like, yeah, sound doctrine, love that. Some of you are like, oh, that's boring, right? Some of you resonate with that middle section, Holy Spirit, the the experience, the power, the spiritual, this power there that's in there, this empoweredness there in the center. And then that bottom, living. You see that good works and godliness, the word of God would also talk about this as holiness, be holy, 
right? Because I am holy, the word of God says. So this is how the gospel empowers our living. These things are not separated, but they are connected in the lifestyle of a Christian. And also they are connected in the culture and the lifestyle of the church. Because the church is made up of you, Christians, who are living out the gospel each and every day. This is that concept right here explained that essentially faith, belief, doctrine, good works, and godliness are not separated, but they are connected and they are united by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables and illuminates your understanding to grow in your knowledge of God, your Savior. As your knowledge grows, as you listen and are impacted by sound teaching, sound doctrine. Your knowledge and your mind, your head, grows, you could say, matures to understand things that you couldn't before. The Bible speaks about how one day you were living on milk. Nowadays, you should be living on meat. You need to grow up into these things. Yet you can't do that without the Holy Spirit sanctifying your understanding, as the word would say, renewing your mind. But those things are not separate. You say, well, I know the right things. I know the doctrines of soteriology and pneumatology and the big words of doctrine and truth, but your lifestyle doesn't reflect it. In fact, your lifestyle, you, you're known to be angry and you are kind of a jerk to other people. Oh, but you know the right things to say, but you're mean, right? Those things don't seem to add up. And that's what many people often get frustrated with the church. They say the right things, but they're a bunch of jerks, you could say, right? It shouldn't be that way with the people of God. Rather, our good works, our godliness, and our holy living should support and adorn what it is we believe. Our walk and our talk need to match up, right? So our good works, our godliness there in the, this is really what we're gonna be talking about today. This message is gonna be for you, literally every single person in this room. There is, a, there is something for you today that the word of God is gonna say, hey, what is your lifestyle doing? Is your lifestyle reflecting what it is you believe? It better start matching up. You're living and yet the second part of chapter two is all about faith, belief, doctrine, gospel, truth that supports our lifestyle. So when you have one or the other, or you try to make one room bigger than the other, you got problems. You got problems. When everyone's all about uh, godliness and living and good works, but there lacks any truth or doctrine or gospel saving power, you have problems with the house and the floor plan. So hopefully that makes sense. We'll probably even go over that next week as, as well. We'll be in chapter two again. But that idea is this concept between orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right practice of that doctrine. They must connect. When I did a sermon series in the, in the book of James, I had to look it up because this was back in March of 2017, eons ago, okay? We preached in the book of James. I did a message called Faith in Action. I still had my notes. I was like, wow. But the faith in action is about this concept of be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You better do it is what it is you're hearing and believe. Because faith alone saves. We believe that. We're a Protestant church. We believe that faith alone saves. Yet, the faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It is faith and works. It is faith leading and acting out your faith. Because faith by itself, if it does not have works, is ultimately dead. Faith breeds works in your life, gives birth to the lifestyle that reflects what it is you believe. Godliness is evidence of your faith. So often we like to malign one or the other. There's so much about the head over there. There's so much about the hands and just doing good works, but they don't, they don't know doctrine and truth. Or they have no heart. Many would say that's kind of this idea of the spirit within it. The, the body, a healthy church, is emphasizing both the head, the heart, and the hands. The entire body working those things out. And I would dare say those three things must be present in all of your lives that you are growing in your head knowledge, you are 
believing and trusting in the spiritual power within you is growing stronger each and every day, and your hands are acting that out in your actions. Yet many of you are talented and gifted by the Spirit in different ways. Some of you gravitate towards the doctrine, gravitate towards the Spirit and feeling. Some of you gravitate towards the hands. And there are areas in which we are strengthened in the body as a group, as a whole. That's why we come together, because we need the specialists in this place, though we are responsible for all three, I would say. And so, as a family that are coming together, both living this out individually, this is kind of like what I need to do, and yet this is what we need to do as a corporate body as well. This is a personal thing that fleshes itself out in a corporate body working this out together as a church, as one big happy family living under one roof. Doesn't that describe us? One big happy family. We never, we're perfect, right? We never have any arguments. We never have any disagreements. Never at all, right? Well, the idea here is that this, as a family, yeah, we're under one roof right now. And we, the family of God is something that unite, is united by the Spirit because we've all been called by God, saved by His grace. We are being sanctified each and every day by His Spirit. That unites us. Not your socioeconomic status, not your skin color or ethnicity or language you speak or don't. Not how smart you are or your degree or whatever. Doesn't matter about any of that. In fact, in Christ, we are united together as one, the family of God. It's one of the most revolutionary concepts in the face of the planet, if not the most. And what's interesting is today, this passage highlights that the family of God living under one roof is multi-generational. Multi-generational. Today, we're going to be talking about older men, older women. Okay, don't get touchy. It says older here. Okay, I know some of you are like, how dare he? Okay, I don't know why it is. As soon as we bring up age, people are like, right? When I was younger, I started pastoring here at 26 years old. I immediately grew a beard because I felt too young and I still feel too young. So I wear a beard as much as possible. It makes me look older, right? Maybe one day I'll be shaving that beard off because I need to look younger. But the whole point is, age is something you can't do anything about. (laughs) You can't change it. There's nothing you can do about your age. But here the Bible is speaking to the multi-generational family of God. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And it does speak about in here, and we'll talk about it, of bond servants. Again, I'm not sure if we're going to get to all of these today. I'm I'm just saying that now, okay? Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to get to every one of those groups. Next week, we're going to be in the same chapter, talking about some of the same things in a deeper way. So... Some of you take notes and you know I have all those categories. We might get to them, we might not. Next week we'll cover them as well. But this idea of older men, I want you to look at this here in verse three. Older men, Um, sorry, verse two that is. Older men is older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So we have a little bit of a slide for each one of these groups that will kind of help summarize these things as we go. I'm just going to be speaking into each one, doing my best to try to apply what this means for us in our context. Again, this concept of older men, it it, it is a sense of, well, what age is that? Like, I'm not going to define for you an age for that. Okay, uh, we can, you can, Hippocrates, a Greek physician, talked about seven stages of human life. He, he talked about like this infant, child, boy, youth, young man, man, old man, and elderly man stage. And, and those phrases or those, those kind of positions maybe depend on who you, it is that you're relating to. I was talking to my wife about these things this week uh, and just speaking about how she was describing in the sense of when it comes down to who it is you're relating to, those positions often change. If I'm even a young man in my early 20s, you, you become kind of somewhat of an old man to some of those kids in middle school. You become somebody that can teach those younger kids. Even kids in elementary can be leaders and, and lead those kids below them. And yet, when you're in your middle age or when you're in your elderly stage and retirement phase, whatever that is, maybe each society defines it differently. But I think the Spirit can teach you and help you know where it is you land in these groups today. But in general, we have older men and women, younger men and women, okay? 
And so in general, these things are very important as we think about how it is both our age and our gender help describe to us our role within the church. These things are important. Paul gives direct group kind of distinctions here, speaking about, in categories, speaking about this family of God. So older men have certain responsibilities here. The word picture that kind of sticks in my mind for older men is they are to be pillars, pillars, these pillars that uphold, these pillars that are strong, these pillars that have weathered storms. We need pillars in our lives. These pillars for me, uh, first off, are reminded, older men, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. To me, sober-minded and self-controlled are connected. You actually see this word self-controlled repeated several times in this chapter for almost every group mentioned. Uh, It seems as if this is a definite problem, both revolving around alcohol and revolving around the control of one's lifestyle. These were very big problems in the island of Crete, and I would say big problems here today too. It's funny how how so much of life repeats itself. We think of ourselves 2,000 years removed, and yet we're repeating the exact same things, need to hear these exact same words. The Spirit speaks to us the same way today, right? And so this idea of sober-minded right here starts off, old men, be sober-minded. Yes, there is a direct connection to alcohol here, this concept of the substance that allows you not to be sober, but to be drunk, Ephesians 5 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish. Therefore, don't be an idiot, he says, okay? But understand what the will of God is, and don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Rather, what does he say? Does he say, hey, just don't get drunk? No, he says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. The implication is that the spirit that is filling you at that time with the alcohol that is controlling your mind and body is disturbing and putting out that spirit of God that ought to be operating your life. The captain of your soul and the master of your fate driving the ship of your life, the spirit of God can be suppressed when you are drunk. And so this has been a problem then, it's a problem then today. The Bible says be sober-minded. You want me to define that for you? I can't. What I'm going to tell you is be sober-minded. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you're a lot easier to devour when you're drunk. (laughs) It's as simple as it gets. And so be careful for alcohol removes your ability to control yourself and rather puts your control into the hands of a spirit, something else beyond the Holy Spirit. I don't know what that looks like or define fine lines, but the Spirit of God will tell you what that is. And so we've got to guard against these things. And older men, you're to set the example in that first and foremost. You are to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Self-control is not something that you just will harder in, but rather is a fruit of the Spirit. And like I said, almost every single group is reminded to be self-controlled here today. So this just isn't for the older men, for everyone. But be self-controlled because it is a fruit of the Spirit. When you are operating in the Spirit of God, you will have love, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The ability to harness yourself in control and operate, as the Word of God would say, walking in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, right? And then there's this word here, dignified. It's definitely a word we don't use very often today. I'll be honest, I was dignified. I think of someone wearing a crown and sitting on a throne. Dignity, right? Someone has, for some reason, an English-British accent, okay, right? This dignified person, right? I don't know why I just went into that. It's not in the notes. But uh, dignified, right? Honorable. You could say someone... um, pertaining to someone who is worthy of respect. Okay, this is a a lifestyle that is honorable and worthy of respect. Someone who models good works. Someone as an elderly man, you can look to their life and say, wow, that is a man living in dignity that I look up to. I want to be like that one day. 
that I can think of in this very room. Many men in this place that I personally look up to because they live a lifestyle of dignity. We maybe can understand what happens when we try to understand these terms. It's sometimes better to understand what the opposite is. If I were to say someone is living in an undignified way, you could probably immediately think of something and what that means. To be an undignified elderly man, sometimes you could say as an older man that this this caricature in our culture is that that man who's angry and embittered at life. It's the classic get off my lawn kind of thing. For so often as an older man, you can be frustrated with the younger generations, the frustrated with the youth and how they just don't get it. And we put ourselves in a position where you have been through a lot, you know a lot, and you're frustrated with others who don't but you forget that you too were once 21 years old, (laughs) needing an older man to look up to and to set a tone and example and to be steadfast and sound in the faith, self-controlled and sober-minded. You too at that age needed somebody like that in your life. And so instead of yelling to get off my lawn, why don't you welcome him in, buy him a cup of coffee, show him what life's all about. That's, the, that's what I think he's talking about, this dignified, respected place, uh, a gentleman of sorts. And if I could, without spending too much time on harping on the older men before we move on, is this sense of ending well. Ending well, this sober mind, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. You're solid right up until the end when the Lord calls you home. We just looked at this. Josh, in particular, Pastor Josh, shared a wonderful message on David a few weeks ago, this sense of David's and how he finished. He was so strong in his youth and in his, uh, his older stage of life, he had w- many fault, uh, failures that led to absolute catastrophic destruction in his life. Finish well, men. Steadfast and strong. Keep the faith. Sound in it. And yet I don't want to go over this because we as men, we like to think about faith, steadfastness, strength, right? And yet it says in love. Did you see that? Sounded faith and in love. A gentleman, someone who is gentle and a man, someone who is able to love and be kind and yet rock solid and strong. That's what we need from the pillars of our church. And that's what I see on a regular basis in this place. Moving on to older women. Likewise, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. This is the most specific group because it tells you what to do. It says you are to teach what is good and train the young women. The word picture I have for you older women is mentors. Mentors. You have these pillars of older men and the mentors of uh, older women. Again, men, you're supposed to be doing this as well. Uh, But that's also reflected, I think, in the elders, which are mentioned in chapter one. These are for the people who are in the church but don't happen to have an office within the church. They are to be reverent in behavior, very similar to the dignified word. Uh, Reverent, living reverent, like having a lifestyle that honors and garners honor and respect, but also worships God their savior, directs others to worship God with their lives. There's a level of seriousness that is appropriate for an older woman. And yet it does harp right off the bat, not slanderers. This sense simply just, it's not hard to understand, not a gossip. There comes maybe with a time in life and stage of life where you have more time than you did before. And with that time comes certain temptations to constantly gossip and slander others who are outside of you and your immediate context. You've got to be careful, both guarding your time and keeping yourself from the temptations to tear others down because you're not in that stage of life anymore or whatever it might be. And then again, reminder again here specifically for women, but again, I think every group, not slaves to much wine. The word is there, don't be addicted. And you can broadly come to our modern stage of life here with the addictions to all sorts of substances and substance abuse. These things will destroy your testimony. They will tear down your ability to share the gospel and ability to function in society. The addictions that we allow to come in and cripple us are absolutely devastating. And yet I just want to say 
And if there's anyone here struggling with any kind of addiction, substance abuse, alcohol, or drugs, we have resources and people to help you. Countless people here have have come and, and received counseling. We have sent many to Teen Challenge and other different resources in the New England area to help them with these things. Don't let for one second think that I'm here preaching down on you who are struggling with addictions and acting as if you have no hope and no help. Both of those things are present within the church. Hope and help and love. And we want to provide that for you if that is something that you need help with. And so these are things to avoid and be careful of. And yet, what are you supposed to be doing? What are you supposed to be doing? It's fascinating here, older women, you're to be teaching and training. And train the young women. This is an opportunity, incredible opportunity, when you think about this, that the word of God actually gives you instructions. I mean, so often we look at Titus 1. Elders, you better be doing this. Elders, you better be teaching. Elders, you better be living a lifestyle of respect and honor and all this long list in Titus chapter 1. And we forget Titus chapter 2 is for you. You, right now, to, to be teaching and training the young women. Retirement, both for older men and older women, is a stage of life here in America. Yes, you can retire from your job. You can retire from your daily work. But you will never, ever find a passage in Scripture that says that it is okay to retire from the kingdom of God. (laughs) There is never a time in life when you're like, well, I've put in my time. I can kick back and relax and just wait till the Lord returns, right? Show me a place in Scripture where you reach a certain age where you can quit the work of God. This is not allowed, and I know I'm speaking as a young man here, and yet there is this sense that I see both with older men and older women that you have now a time to shift your priorities, maybe from homemaking and raising children, maybe from from men really bringing and working day in and day out. All of a sudden, you have all this time on your hand, and the world would tell you, it's now me time, right? It's vacation time. It's now me to relax on the beach for the rest of my life and waste my later years. That is not what God calls you to do. He calls you to now shift your focus to training the next generation. Maybe that's grandkids. Maybe that's your own children. Maybe that's others that are within your context that the Spirit of God lays on your heart. But I know for 100% sure that it is you older women helping to train these young moms in this church, right? It is your responsibility. The Bible gives it and puts it on your lap. And so I know some of the ladies even in church have been talking about these ideas. I was talking with several this week and they're thinking about different ways that we can help bring the generations together. How can we get older women and younger women together? And there are Bible studies and women's Bible studies that go on in these ways. But honestly, if, even if you just in an organic way, if you, women and ladies, depending on where you're at in this stage, if you need someone to mentor you, to show you the ways of life, how to raise children, how to love your husband, all of these things, you need to reach out to an older woman. And, and older women, be on prayerful lookout for those that you can sow life into. And I think it's so important that we respect those who have gone before us, respect those who are in the thick of it, you know, Current culture today doesn't really respect our elders in the way that I think the word of God does. And I think many of us, speaking even for myself as a young man, but for many of us young moms, young women in this place, we would crave someone older than us to come and mentor us. And I think the culture pushes against that is it worships youth. The culture today worships everything young and new and fresh. The word of God constantly defers things away from that and actually says, look to the, the mentors, look to the elders, look at those who have gone before you, look to them for wisdom. And I think that's a wonderful and most beautiful thing. So the older women, you're to be teaching and training the young women. What are you to teach them to do? Well, a whole host of things, right? And yet specifically, teach and train young women to love their husbands and children Teach them to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. It first tells us, like, teach them to love their husbands and children. You've been through the thick and the thin and the ups and the downs of marital life. Many of you have been married for decades of experience that you have that you can give young uh, moms and you can help them 
in these kinds of things. But I would even dare say, I don't wanna leave out the singles in our church, those who are single in these ways, who are seeking to prepare themselves possibly for a marriage one day. You also, I, I believe, are included in this, that older women can help encourage these young singles as what it would be like, what it is to live a godly Christian life in today's world. Teach them to love their husbands. Teach them to love their children. Teach them the wisdom of doing that. Be them also, teach them to be self-controlled. Here it is again. Young women, be self-controlled. Teach them to be kind. I find that a fascinating word that's used specifically here and not in any of the other groups. Teach them to be kind. Teach them to be kind to their children. Ladies, are, are you kind to your children? Are you kind to your husbands? Uh, that's a challenging statement. I know there are many different situations in this place. I don't want to be trite. But, but, but here the word of God would tell us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. And I wonder sometimes in my own parenting, would my children see me as a father? Would they see me as kind? You know, they might see me as, as uh, demanding discipline and perfectionist, and I set a high standard in the household. But at the end of the day, would they see you also as kind? Word of God would say a character of God is his loving kindness. Have you always found that as fascinating that those are connected in the word? God's loving kindness. It's a beautiful thing. And yet we often need instruction as to how that works itself out in disciplining our children and living and parenting with them, living in a multi-generational household, as many of you do, living and working with family units and, and such. And so this other phrase is working at home and being submissive to very non-controversial things, so I'll just skip beyond them, right? I mean, some of you are like, what does that mean? Working at home, I, I did talk with several different ladies this week about this passage in this chapter, and even some of it we might be able to get to next week as well. But the working at home, this concept does not mean that a, a woman can never have a job outside the home. I just want to make that clear. That this passage really is focusing on the aspect that a woman's first priority is her home and her children, that the operation of a woman within the household is that that should never be neglected. And if the children and the home and the life of the home is being neglected, then other things need to change before that is taken away. The sense is that is the first priority. The modern culture does everything to deny this truth. Does everything to make um, young moms who are a stay-at-home mom feel lesser and unimportant than those who don't do that. Yet I, again, want to be sensitive. There are many people who have different situations, different financial pictures and what is going on in their lives. And there are many who are unable to do that. Or a single mom trying to do everything and all things for her children. I understand this. But as a general rule, I just want you to hear me out in this. The economy of our world today, double income, this culture that does not support or support stay-at-home moms at all. If anything, looks down on them because they're not making a real difference in the world until they grow up and get a real job, right? And so we have to change that narrative in the church that many are able and gifted by God to do a multiplicity of things, wonderfully and beautiful, manage the household that they have and manage a side business or sorts of other things, skilled at many things. Others are called to nurture and raise a children uh, up in the Lord, being a stay-at-home mom is kingdom work. You must hear that from the church. It is something that is vital and important. Raising children is not a, a lesser task, okay? It is something in which God has given, specifically, chief and foremost, to women. Yes, men, husbands, we are involved in all of these things, of course. And then it says for ladies... Um, to be submissive. Again, this is not a, a ball and chain, a shackles that you, you have to do. In fact, the, this word submissive as it relates in marriage is mentioned six or seven times, I believe, in a variety of other passages. Uh, Ephesians 5 being one of the chief passages here. And in many ways, my wife and I talk about this all the time with young couples. Uh, we do a lot of weddings, thank the Lord, and a lot of the weddings we get to meet with these young couples and talk about a marriage relationship between a husband and wife. And since my wife and I have gone through a variety of these things, we try to help couples see what this looks like. 
This isn't like an inferior superiority complex where the husband is superior. This isn't a concept at all. In fact, a husband and wife are to be equal. One commentator writes that there's an equality of worth in marriage, but that does not mean an identity of role. A husband being a man has a different role than a woman being a wife. They have different roles, and yet they are equal and valued the same before God. Is that, that must be clear. And so this isn't this concept of inferior or superior. For Christ himself submitted to the Father. Christ submitted. This is two equals. One equal endowed by God with authority and leadership in the home. The other equal out of her own volition chooses to submit herself under the covering of her husband. And submit and follow the husband's lead. A husband and wife in a complementarian way. These things are are inextricably linked to both creation at the beginning in Genesis, both the structure of the church, how it's presented with the male leadership of elders and the church that functions within it, and yet also then in the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. Creation, the church, and marriage, they are linked together in using the same words, the same illustrations, and they are vital because each one reflects the other because it all reflects God's unifying love into the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ's love for his bride, the church. It's as if God has designed marriage to work as a husband and wife like a tandem bike. One writer describes it this way, God designed husbands to pedal and ride on the front seat and the wife to pedal on the seat behind, both working together in tandem to drive the bike through life. Certainly one can be poor at one or the other, but it is not the responsibility of the one to make the other do what God's called them to do. Husbands, it is not your job to make your wife submit. Your job is to love, cherish. The word of God says in Ephesians 5, husbands, you are to lay down your life for your wife. Like Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church. Are you ready for that? Can you do that? Lay down your wife for your wife. When you do that, your wife will honor you, submit, and respect you, and love you in ways you could never imagine. It is when they both work in tandem that we find the unity of what marriage is supposed to look like. And it is when the church does that, that the elders lay down their lives for the people of God as servants, not seeking to be served by the church, but to serve. It is when we do that, that the church then comes and works in cohesion. But it is when sin gets in the way and we see these things as dictatorships, to lord our power and authority over places both as a husband or both as an elder in a church, this is where it all gets out of whack. Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. You submit to your husband, not to every man, and you submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord, as is according to God's law. If abuse or problems or your husband is leading you to sin, there is no reason for you to submit. It is a reason that you submit to God, his submission, your submission there first. And then husbands, love your wives, Colossians says, and don't be harsh with them. Because you're put in a position of authority where you can easily embitter your wife and be harsh with her and make her life miserable. There is a job where you are supposed to nurture, grow that vine and help sustain and support her so that she can help sustain and support you so that you don't fight against each other, but you're riding the bike in the same direction. This is what it's called to be marriage. And yet, I want to harp on this before we close. We'll get to the younger men and the bond servants next week. But this concept here is so important because all of that, what I just said, I can tell you. But older ladies, you're supposed to be teaching that to the younger women. I can explain to you from man's perspective, from God's word, what it says. But there's something about an older woman coming alongside a young mom and teaching her what that looks like in real life, right? That's your responsibility. In young women, that's your responsibility to receive that mentorship from an older woman as well. And older men, to be pillars of the church, to be sound in your faith, to give that confidence and courage to all the other generations that come underneath you. This is what makes up the church. This is what makes up our responsibility. And so today, we're gonna close with that, with a reminder before we come to the table. In verse 10, it says that in everything that it may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All that I just said with those three groups and the two groups we'll look at next week along with the gospel. All of these things are to adorn the gospel like a Christmas tree that's lit up. 
It's a beautiful tree on and of itself. It is living. It is green. It is alive. We as the church come along and we place our ornaments of beauty on that tree to adorn the gospel with our good works. And for some reason, God's designed the church to work in this manner as if we could ever beautify the gospel. But he tells us to make your lifestyle adorn the gospel. Men, ladies, no matter what your age, our job is to adorn the gospel with our lifestyle. Is your time that you spend in your daily week adorn the gospel? Do the talents that you give to uh, life, does, that, does your resources and treasure, do those things that you are doing with your money, with your time, with your, with your life, does that life adorn the gospel? Does it beautify it and shine that light even more brightly? So as a family, what we're gonna do here to close is we're gonna come before a family meal. Uh, all ages, multi-generational. You might hear kids crying and, as they get antsy at the end of church. You're gonna hear all of those things. Why? Because we're a family. <laughs> it's, it's not always pretty. It doesn't always work exactly right. Uh, and sometimes there's arguments in this and that, but we're a family of God. We're linked by the Holy Spirit and we're united around a table, a meal. Jesus shared and broke that bread with his disciples. He broke and, and they shared of the cup together and they united around a table, and we're gonna do the same today, 2,000 years later, and we'll do that until he returns. So the family of God remembers who it is we are. Our identity is here. It is in the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer before the elders and deacons come to dispense the elements. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. God, you're good to us, and we're grateful for all that you've taught us today. Thank you, Lord, that your word can be challenging. Sometimes, God, it's kind of hard to hear if we're, if we're honest. But Lord, we need to be challenged. We need to be pushed a little bit. May your spirit teach us what it is that we need to work on today. Lord, how it is we need to be sourcing our lifestyle from your gospel truth. Help your spirit to enliven, equip, and encourage us here in this place. And I thank you, God, for your gospel. I thank you, God, for the cro cross, your blood that was shed. Thank you for the truths that we participate in together as a family today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.